This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Hello, welcome to Celebration Church. Good to have you with us. Uh, here, as well as those who are watching online and our uh, campus down in the Fox Valley. Good to have you all with us for our first Sunday time of worship. Hopefully it's been a blessing for you so far. The music's been great. Um, we were doing a study and pretty much wrapped it up just about what the Bible is, why the books are there, who decided what books would be there, how did they decide it. Most of it was just depend on who wrote it apostles or someone who was related to an apostle kind of thing. Uh, and that's the teaching of the, uh, in the New Testament. The Old Testament was pretty much the same thing. Uh, the Jewish nation decided what books would be in the Old Testament. And again, most of that was based on who it was that wrote it and, and the history behind it, okay? Now I want to shift a little bit, and I want to start talking about the history of the church. What happened over the last 2,000 years? How did we get to this point? And I want to point out some of these events. We'll see how far we get uh, we're not in any big hurry. We always got the next time. Anyway, so anyway, in the beginning, Christians held the idea that Christ's return was imminent. When Jesus said, I will return, they thought he's coming right back. All right, like running down to, you know, Costco to get something, you know, come right back. And, uh, and they were very much excited about it. Uh, they created, it created this intense joy and anticipation. But then it led to some questionable behaviors among the Christians, and even a sense eventually of disappointment for some. Uh, in the beginning, we have this report. We read this in Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 44 through 47. And this is the early record of, of how the church started after Jesus had been raised into heaven. It says all the believers were together and had everything in common. They basically, this is the first commune. <laughs> it wasn't a bunch of hippies, a bunch of Christians. And they all got together, and they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So they're basically, they're selling everything they got. You know, they're pooling the money, sharing as people needed. They're hanging out, it says, daily at the temple, they're worshiping God and they're having church every day and kind of just big chillaxing because they thought he's coming right back. I mean, if you actually really believed in your soul, soul and your heart of hearts that Jesus was going to be coming back in three months, who cares? Who cares about bills? Who cares about this, that and the other, man? Just kind of let's wrap it up and, and hang out together uh, because he's coming right back. Uh, well, then obviously, it created some problems because, you know, it's not a kind of system that can keep going. Uh, and it started having strains and became a problem. Um, some people wouldn't work. Um, Paul writes about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. What rule? 
The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. If the guy's not going to work, don't feed him. Start working. Other scriptures, you can look it up yourself, or in the New Testament, are telling people, hey, do something. Okay, get off your butt and just don't sit around waiting. All right? And then eventually, the apostles had to start giving them this teaching, because they didn't know. But I think in their soul, at some point, they got the sense that this might be a while. And Paul talks about it in Romans, the, uh, oops, I'm sorry, in 2 Peter. Peter wrote about it. Uh, in uh, 2 Peter, the third chapter, starting in verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. What promise? He said he's coming back. That's his promise. He's not slow as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So this has been a while now. No way in their wildest imagination that they think we'd still be here 2,000 years later. Uh, and why are we still here? Because if Jesus had come back earlier, none of us would be part of this. None of us would be part of this wonderful celebration, the glory of God. So he's not willing for anyone to perish. At some point, this ends. Who knows? I don't know. I think it's a lot sooner than most people think. But it might be a while yet. I don't know. Uh, no one's going to know. Um, so he starts putting it in context. Look, time is different for God. All right? A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. All right? So anyway, this is the church. The, uh, apostolic era where the apostles was with us is starting to come to an end. Some of these guys are being uh, martyred. Actually, they were all martyred except for John. He was the only one who wasn't. Uh, and time is running short. And they're thinking about, okay, we need to keep this thing going. And how do we keep this thing going? One of the concerns that they had was that heresies, these destructive teachings, would infect the church. Uh, we read about this in Romans, the 16th chapter, verse 17. Paul writes, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. So he's putting out the word to start watching out. Start with, there's going to be people that are going to come in and start to corrupt the faith that we are holding dear to. Uh, Peter writes about this as well. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now there were false prophets among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, and even deny the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many people will follow their immoral ways, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. In their greed, they will exploit you with deceptive words. The ancient verdict against them is still in force, and their destruction is not delayed. So he's talking about the judgment these guys are going to be in for, but starting to warn them. Bad teachers are coming. Some are already here. And this is one of the first things that the church started struggling with as the apostles were dying off and the next bishops that they had put in place were now the church fathers bringing us in the first 300 years of Christianity right after the apostles and the next 200 years 
uh, these apostolic fathers who were put in place by the apostles. You know, so these guys, first, first-hand guys. Uh, but then they started running into some very weird doctrines that started popping up in Christianity. Now I'm just going to mention uh, a few of the main ones. Uh, and there were, you can study this stuff on your own. I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version, okay? This is the just broad, general. Uh, lots of it, uh, you can just pop in on, on Google and you'll see tons of stuff. And it's like pouring salt in your eyes. I mean, this is detailed. This group to that group to this bishop to that. And then all the different things that were going on. But uh, the three main heresies that came into the church, one of them was called Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism uh, was the conviction that matter was evil. And that uh, uh, freedom comes through Gnosis, which is wisdom. In other words, their idea of salvation is that you would have just this, all of a sudden you start to understand God the right way that they put it, which is the dangerous part because now they're taking you away from what? Faith in Christ, faith in Jesus and repentance of their sins and putting their faith in God, being born again is now being replaced with, you just need to have this revelation. And if you have this right revelation, all of a sudden it'll all make sense. And that's how you come to know God. And this is very destructive because you're starting to pull people away from faith in Christ. So, uh, they had a problem. They said, well, if all matter, physical stuff is evil, then why did God create it? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Well, they come up with this thought that there's a difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. I'm just telling you what they taught, all right? That the Old Testament God was a lesser God and the true God was the God of the New Testament. And this is why at times we get the idea that, you know, um, the angry version of God in the Old Testament versus the forgiving God of the New Testament. But the truth is the forgiving grace of God is seen throughout the entire Bible. You can see it all throughout the Old Testament. God was a very compassionate kind. The reason why butt kicking would come in is because they were stubborn and rebellious. Uh, again, just read the books of Kings. God kept warning them, hey, judgment's coming. It eventually does, right? 12 tribes of Israel, or the 10 tribes, uh, completely lost to judgment. The final two, Judah and Benjamin, uh, eventually came out of captivity. And then they had Judah, where Jesus was born in the land of Judah, hence the name Jews. Uh, nobody knows what happened to the other 10 tribes. They're still out there. Uh, the New Testament shows that in the end, they're going to discover who these people are, how they do this. I don't know. DNA, I have no idea. But uh, so anyway, the serious judgment and all the stuff that happened in the Old Testament, uh, God was incredibly merciful and kind, but very strict to those who would fight him. And the truth is the same thing is true in the New Testament. You know, you want to bring judgment on yourself? Start disobeying God <laughs> and, and create all kinds of problems in your life. So, uh, so anyway, this is their whole thing. And um, since matter was evil, they taught that Jesus wasn't really an actual physical man, but a spirit that looked like a man. Uh, in fact, this will make sense to you now if you've ever read this verse in the New Testament. This is John, 1 John. John wrote his Gospels, and then there's three epistles by John. In the first epistle, chapter 4, verse 1, starting there. He writes, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh 
is from God. But every evil spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. What is he talking about? He's talking about this Gnosticism that is already popping up. Because it was already popping up before the apostles died off. And that's why he said, you know, if anyone who says Jesus didn't come into the flesh, this is a wrong spirit, all right? Because they're buying into all kinds of weird craziness. And by extension, they, they, things got really out of hand uh, in their thinking, and it became very destructive in pulling a people away from faith. Uh, it all seems very odd to us because none of us think this way. But make no mistake, this line of thinking as in even the tiniest ways, found itself into Christian teaching and Christian thought throughout the last 2,000 years. Uh, any kind of pleasure is bad. This is kind of Christian thinking. You know, if it tastes good, it must be sinful. You've heard this, right? At least you even see ads on TV. So good is sinfully delicious, you know. Comes from this idea that if you enjoy something too much, it is a sin, and they obviously uh, struggle with this. John Wesley, which just, he was back in the uh, I don't know, 1700s, 1800s, uh, was, a, um, was the kind of guy who didn't want to eat good food, tasting good food, because he thought it was a sin. John Wesley, he was mightily used by God to bring countless millions of people to Jesus. When that guy would preach, I mean, he had such a revival throughout England that also came into the uh, United States. And uh, this is where you get the Methodist church. You introduce Methodism, that there's a strict method on how we believe God. And part of this was the strong denial of the flesh, which you can get when you read Jesus' teaching. He talks, we should deny our flesh. But we would think today, I think clearly Jesus meant your sinful flesh. You know, deny yourself things you know are wrong. Well, I want to do it. Well, yeah, it's called temptation. That's why it's temptation. If you didn't want to do it, nobody's tempted by things they don't want to do. All right? I'm generally not tempted to want to kill people, although there are days. All right, so we don't struggle with a lot of these things. So we're supposed to deny our, our things that are wrong. But the idea that you can't enjoy things is, you know, troublesome. Um, you, you can imagine how, I mean, the early church, a lot of them would... This is where you get the idea of these monks and stuff that would happen in early Christianity. They wanted to live in intentional poverty and live as miserably as humanly possible uh, so that they could please God. Again, we don't think this way, but this is where they, this, some idea, not just the Gnostics, but some of this spilled into Christian thought that pleasurable things were evil. You can imagine what they thought of sex. I mean, this can't be good. Because it's too enjoyable. So um, they actually encourage, I'm not making this up. You can Google this stuff and read some of this. Some of it's hilarious. But uh, they basically encourage couples could get married, but they shouldn't have sex. You can imagine the tension in those homes, all right? And I mean, so the, all this was going on. Or if they did, you know, there, <laughs> there was a little pamphlet that was released. Uh, I was trying to think of where it came from, and I didn't have time to find it, but... Uh, uh, it was a pamphlet, I can't remember when it was, 1500s, whatever, Middle Ages, you know, that couples should not have sex on Fridays out of respect for Christ's death 
and they shouldn't have uh, sex on Saturdays out of respect for lost souls, and they shouldn't have sex on Monday or Sunday because out of respect for Christ's resurrection. And anyway, every day they had, except there was one day. I can't remember what that was, day. And that was probably, woohoo, we got the one day, all right? So, I mean, anything along this line, if it was enjoyable, it had to be uh, sinful and bad. Uh, John Wesley, as amazing as he was, and how God used him incredibly, he had one of the worst marriages recorded in <laughs> Christian history. They fought horribly. I, I don't know, he didn't fight so much. She did. <laughs> she, she would, he'd be preaching to her. He, she'd run up there and grab him by his hair from the pulpit and pull him off the stage, you know, and just made his life a living hell. And for years, I read people who criticized Wesley's wife because she was so abrasive. But as I became a mature man and stuff, I thought, wait a minute. Here's a guy who thought it was a sin to eat something that tastes good. You can imagine how much fun he was in the sack, you know? So, you know what I'm saying? She, he, she probably, he probably starved her out and was mad as a hornet. She got married, you know, to him and not having a normal relationship. So here, that was a man who should have never gotten married. Uh, anyway, it just became a problem. And, and, and this carried in into the uh, 1800s, the, the, the uh, Second Great Awakening is what they called it in the United States, the Great Revival. Uh, there was a massive revival in America around the time of the Civil War, and it was powerful. I mean, if you ever, if you ever get a chance to go to uh, New England and stuff and travel around, and you'll see all these places where they'll have, you know, this happened and that. It was like incredible revivals that took place. I mean, guys would start praying and people would just start falling down, crying out to God. Uh, there was one, uh, they said there was this one area among New, uh, on the coast of New England where people prayed all the time and sailors would be f sailing by and they'd all just fall on their knees and start crying and they didn't even know why, calling out to God. I mean, there was such an amazing, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people's lives were transformed during this incredible revival in our country. Uh, a lot of the songs, gospel songs that we sing uh, today, well, we don't sing them so much anymore, but churches for, you know, the last 200 years have been singing, came from that period. Um, and it was very, very powerful. Uh, but they also, there was this line of, you know, if it tastes good, it's a sin. So, um, again, Google this. So, you know, I'm not making this up. And... We don't have young children here, right? They are explaining to them later or not. I don't care what you do. But uh, um, you guys know graham crackers? You know, graham crackers were introduced by a very devout Christian man uh, because he wanted to create a food that was very, very plain and not enjoyable because they were convinced that if men would eat this in prison, they wouldn't self-gratify them, you know, gratify themselves. Do I have to spell it out? You know what I'm talking about, the big M, all right? So look it up, graham crackers and the M word, and you'll see it's all right there. That was created. I'm pretty sure they added a lot of sugar since then, because actually I like graham today. But take all the sugar out, you can imagine how awful this was. They, because they were convinced that if you enjoyed something, this would make you crazy, and you'd want to act out sexually. Cornflakes were also invented for the same reason. Look at the history, it's stunning. Some of the foods, the people, bland, icky, black food that were, again, they've souped it up since then. 
but originally it was just nasty stuff because they were convinced if you enjoyed it, it would create food. You start losing control of yourself. Anyway, uh, sin is bad, but physical things are not in and of themselves sinful. In fact, these guys tried to totally dis, uh, disconnect from the physical and the spiritual. And they tried to encourage you to live in this weird spiritual realm. And that's where they got the idea of, you know, this knowledge that that's how you get saved, which is not how you get saved. But uh, um, it's in direct contradiction to sacraments, sacraments in the church. You know what that is? It is God using a physical thing to bless your life. When you are baptized, you are using what? Water. All right. It's a physical thing. This is a, when you take the Lord's Supper, you're using bread and wine. These are physical things. When someone lays hands on you to pray, this is also a sacramental thing where God shows up in the physical touching of another human being as you pray for them. These are sacred events that happens. God uses the physical thing. The, the world in which we live is very blessed. We're supposed to be thankful, by the way, for all our physical blessings and all the great things that God has given us in our lives. But anyway, this idea that was extreme in this weird sect, you know, which pretty much fell apart after the uh, first 200 years of Christianity. There's not really a Gnostic group anymore that I'm aware of. But again, some of these things, lines have stayed with uh, the church. Anyway, not with us. Um, so then there is, so that's the Gnosticism, and there's lots of versions of it. And I think the reason why there are lots of versions of it, people didn't have social media and stuff back. There wasn't a way for everybody to let everybody know what they were thinking. So this idea would start popping up and there would be different versions based on where you lived. And, you know, they weren't talking to each other. So, you know, when they're getting on the phone, hey, man, what do you think about this? You know, it, it was separated by a lot of miles. So that's why if you, if you study it, there's a gazillion versions of it that give you a headache trying to figure it all out. But so that was one of the main things. Again, the biggest problem with it is causing people to turn away from putting their faith in Jesus. All right? Um, then there is, let's see. Da, 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 da. Then this is heresy called the Nicolaitans. Uh, not Nickelodeon. That's a channel for children. But uh, the Nicolaitans. And uh, we read about these guys in Revelation uh, the second chapter, starting at verse one. Now, John has this vision and then he writes the book of Revelation talking about the end of all things. And uh, um, before he gets to the revelation, Jesus tells John to write these letters to the seven main churches and calling them out or challenging them. So this is one, uh, in chapter two, verse one, it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, He's telling John to write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them false. So they've been doing the right things. You persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. These sound like pretty nice people, but then Jesus said, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. We talk about losing your first love, that first intensity uh, that happens almost automatically when one is first a Christian. 
we are warned not to lose that first love that we have. And if you do, we need to go back and repent and like what we did at the beginning, which is what he says. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What's that mean? I don't know. It doesn't sound good. But, if you, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This should get your attention. This is the only place we read, read where Jesus hated anything. He hates this. Not the people, but he hated these practices. What are they? He doesn't say. But then we get a little more insight as he continues to talk. The next letter, he says, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, which is in Turkey. Uh, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. This is interesting. Apparently, you know, he's writing where Satan himself was (laughs) hanging out on earth. Uh, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So these people have endured persecution and stuff. Um, To be a Christian in these early days was very dangerous. A lot of people lost their lives. Uh, Nevertheless, in spite of that, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Um, who taught Balak uh, to intense the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. So what's this about? This is an Old Testament story where uh, this guy was trying to pay this prophet to curse Israel because he wanted to destroy Israel. And Balaam would always say, well, I, I, he was happy to take the money, but I can only say what God tells me to say. And every time he would speak over Israel, he would bless them. And, and the guy was paid on the money. It was really getting mad. It's going over and over again. Uh, this is the time in the Bible where uh, Balaam was riding his donkey and his donkey was fighting him uh, because the donkey could see that there was an angel uh, up the road with a flaming sword ready to kill Balaam. All right. But Balaam couldn't see it. And Balaam is trying to pull it. He won't move. And he's hitting this donkey and he's yelling, what's the matter with you, you stupid animal? And the Bible says the donkey talked in a human voice and said, look what's up ahead, <laughs> basically. And, uh, and then Balaam realized what, uh, what he saw. So that's always encouraging. If God can use a jackass, there's hope for all of us here. So, uh, so anyway, but then what Balaam does is he says, listen to this guy. You want God to take his hands off, just get him to sin. Just get him to sin and send women in there and all this stuff and suck them into sexual sin and all this kind of stuff. And that's what happens. And then, of course, then judgment comes on the people. So anyway, Balaam was in big trouble for doing this. He completely sold out the people of God. So he basically says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So apparently the Nicolaitans what they were doing was encouraging what Jesus said here, food, eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Now, the food offered to idols, kind of an interesting insight when I was finally reading this because I talked to, not too long ago about how sometimes when you read the Apostle Paul, it's a little hard to understand. And one of these times is when he's talking about this idea of eating food to idols. And he writes in 1 Corinthians, and at the time I said, look, these guys write these letters, there's context. We don't even know what the context is. But after looking at this, it just kind of dawned in my head. 
Uh, what he's talking, he, he would say, don't eat food offered to idols. Uh, and then he says, but when you go shopping or somebody invites you to the house, don't ask where the food comes from. Well, wait, I thought we weren't supposed to eat food offered to idols because Paul says, I can eat anything I want. Who really cares? But yet there's a big con- condemnation. Once you study this, as I was studying, uh, when they were engaged in eating food to idols, you know, again, it's context, they understood they were engaging in pagan activity with these people. And that's what was condemned. We are not supposed to engage in, of course, we don't really have stuff like this today, but uh, that's kind of stuff Christians were supposed to stay away from. Uh, and part of pagan worship uh, was uh, temple prostitutes and all this kind of stuff. So he warned them, don't do that. So that was the Nicolaitans. And we don't really know much about them today other than that's what they were doing. But they were basically teaching this, that God's grace is so big, it doesn't matter what we do. And doesn't that sound pretty? Doesn't it almost sound exciting? Doesn't it almost say, why wasn't God big? But think of how corrupting this is. What they were doing was causing people to sin against God because God's grace is so big. Something that Paul wrote in Romans said, he said, should we sin that God has this great grace? He said, God forbid, we're not supposed to live this way. But this is what the Nicolaitans were doing and their teachings back then. And this is stuff that is still being taught to this very day. There are people who teach an extreme version of grace in America uh, that basically says, uh, God's grace is so big, it doesn't really matter why you just do anything. You want to commit adultery? Oh, your wife might get mad at you, but God doesn't care. You know, you want to lie, steal, and cheat? Yeah, get drunk, whatever. Yeah, but God, is, grace is bigger than all that. Um, there's a guy by the name of Rob Bell. Keep that name in your head. He's a modern-day Nicolaitan who teaches this kind of nonsense and has corrupted the faith of all kinds of young people because they love this message, right? Oh, I love Jesus. I mean, I can do anything I want. Woo! And that's what they do. And it creates all this poison into their souls. Uh, so this kind of stuff, this is dangerous stuff that was affecting the church, and he warned them to avoid it at all cost. All right? And then the other major thing that the church struggled with in the beginning, and we're going to have fun going through the timeline, and I'm going to show you the next time we do this, uh, some of the major events. It might take a you know, few of these Wednesday nights to show you the major events in the last 2,000 years that have shaped our faith and still affect us today. But this early one was the, the other heresy was out there is they challenged the idea of the Trinity, of who Jesus was. And one of the big problems was uh, they were te- teaching, and this was a major thing, uh, that uh, G- because Jesus was born, that that's when he began to exist. Because that's when we all begin to exist, right? So they applied this to Jesus. The problem is, then by conclusion, Jesus is not at really, he's a lesser version of God because he, he didn't have, because God is, has no beginning, right? Well, Jesus has a beginning, therefore he's a lesser version of God. And all of this is designed to corrupt people's faith in Jesus. Uh, and this became a major problem. Now, they introduced some creeds into the church. There are three major creeds of uh, Orthodox Christianity. We recite one every Sunday. It's called the Apostles' Creed. This was introduced initially to stop some of these heresies to say, this is what we believe. 
The problem is the Apostles' Creed left a room, wiggle room, for some of these other goofy heresies to take place. So the next major creed is the Nicene Creed, which is more descriptive of, um, of our faith. Let's take one, pop up there, the Apostles' Creed. You guys know this all by heart. At least you should by now. We say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Now, what, what happens here is the heretics would say, yeah, we believe in that, but he didn't really come into existence till then. You see the opening for that doctrine. You could recite the Apostles' Creed and still allow for this thinking. So they came along, you can drop that. They came along and uh, came up with the Nicene Creed. Now what happens here is all these bishops got together uh, for this, they call the Council of Nicaea that happened in 200 something, whatever it was. All this in the first 300 years of Christianity. And they created a more strict version of the creed to block out some of these heresies that were messing with people. So let's take a look at the Nicene Creed, all right? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. They wanted to point out he made all this stuff. It wasn't a different God, and these things are not evil. Of all that is seen and unseen, he made it all. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. And then this line, I take this line and I stick it in the Apostles' Creed. You always hear this, right? Because we say, who for us and for our salvation. Because it's such a beautiful thing because it so perfectly nails what we believe. So anyone who's a real purist, and I run into them from once in a while, get a little ruffled because we add that into the Apostles' Creed. It doesn't really belong there. Well, <laughs> all right, so I don't really care. Uh, so he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary. He was, ma he was made man for our sake. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Jesus wasn't, he suffered death and was buried. They're trying to really underline that Jesus was a physical man. He wasn't a spirit that looked like a man. He was actually man, actually God and actually man at the same time. And it goes on. So this is why, well, first of all, you can see why we recite the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> this takes a while, but this is nothing. Let me introduce you <laughs> to the, how do you even say it? The Athanasian Creed, because this still wasn't good enough. Now, I don't know anybody anywhere who recites this creed. Uh, a lot of churches will do the Apostles' Creed, or still a lot of them will do the Nicene Creed. It's, it's a bit longer, but uh, not horribly complicated. This one, this is the yo mama of all creeds. And look at how intensely. They want to make it so clear about the Trinity. And they would throw in some damnation if you didn't believe them. All right. This is this creed. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Now, when you hear Catholic, don't think Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic Church didn't even exist at this point. This is the universal Christian faith, okay? Uh, back up. <laughs> back up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, I guess I didn't read all of it. <laughs> Sorry. Hold the Catholic faith next. 
I thought there was more. Which faith except everyone do keep whole and undefiled without doubt, if you don't believe this, he shall perish everlastingly. Nothing like little damnation and hellfire. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreate, in other words, nobody made him, the Son uncreate, and the Holy Ghost uncreate. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Ghost eternal, and yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal, as also there are not three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. This is all great stuff. This is literally what we believe, right? But they wanted it in black and white. And yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord, and yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian ver verity, means truth, to acknowledge every person, by himself to be both God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion, the universal Christian religion, that there be three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding, because the Holy Spirit proceeds from God. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, <laughs> not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts, and in this Trinity, none is a four or after other, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal, so that in all things, as is foresaid, uh, the, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshiped. He therefore that will be saved must think thus of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. What he's basically saying is what... See, we don't struggle with any of this stuff, right? We all believe it. We don't even think about it when we see the apostles. But this was a major problem in early Christianity. So they drilled this into people, okay? God, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. This is the miracle of Jesus, all right? So anyway, perfect God and perfect man of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood who, although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking the manhood into God, one altogether, not by confusion of substance. Speaking of confusion, <laughs> I'm already confused. 
but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty. From whence he will come to judge the quick and the dead, and whose coming all men will rise again with their bodies and shall give account for their own works. And they that have done good shall go into everlasting life and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the universal faith, which except a man believes faithfully, he cannot be saved. Whew. All right, so this is why we don't recite this one, because <laughs> it would take a long time to get through it all. Who's going to remember all that? So the only two that really seem to take hold, again, the Apostles' Creed was what we use. The Nicene Creed, a little bit more detail and stuff. But we don't struggle with these. For some reason, early Christianity really struggled with this. And they created these false uh, versions that became heresies because ultimately these people would insert different things to turn people away from Jesus and create their own version of God and their own version of theology and their own version of, you know, Old Testament God, New Testament, all, all these weird things. They just corrupted people's faith, and it had a very negative impact on a great many people, hence the introduction of the creeds. That's why they are there. All right, so next time what we're going to do is we're going to pick up there. We're going to start going through the timeline and marking out some of the major events that have happened over the last 2,000 years and how we got to where we are today. And it was a lot, a lot of good things to learn from this. All right, I won't ask if you have any questions because I don't want to hear them. <laughs> No, no, you can ask me afterwards, but uh, we'll be here for a long time if you have any questions. But I don't know how you could read that last one and have any questions. It's pretty clear. So uh, one God, three persons. We get it, you know, but boy, did they drill that down really strong. All right, let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for your word and for your truth. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you, uh, these men and women who have gone before us fought very hard and very strong to maintain a clear truth about God that is consistent with the scriptures that was passed on even to us this time, at this time 2,000 years later. Thank you, Lord. Help us to continue to proclaim the good news of Christ and the truth of the gospels in ways that people can clearly understand. Thank you for all this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless y'all. See you Sunday morning.